Well, good morning, friends. Please do turn back to Esther with me. And we reach chapter 7 this week. We're going to read chapter 7, verse 1, through to chapter 8, verse 2. And you can follow along in the ESV Church Bibles on page 414. Last week, just as Haman's dreams of grandeur and his wicked schemes all began to fall apart, if you remember, the king's men arrived at the door to escort him to Esther's second carefully prepared banquet and the climax of her plan. So let's pick up the story in chapter 7 and verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther. And as the second day of drinking wine got underway, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half my kingdom. It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves and maidservants, I would have been silent, because our affliction is not worth the burden of the king. Then King Ahasuerus spoke and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he whose heart has filled him to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was gripped with terror before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his fury from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood to beg for his life from Queen Esther because he saw that disaster was determined against him by the king. Then the king returned from the palace garden to the house of wine drinking, and Haman was falling on the couch that Queen Esther was upon. And the king said, Will he even violate the queen in my presence, in my own house? The word went out from the king's mouth, and they covered Haman's face. Then Harbiner, one of the officials in attendance on the king, said, Also, look! The spike that Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke to help the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, impale him upon it. So they impaled Haman on the spike that he had set up for Mordecai. And the king's fury abated. That day, King Ahasuerosh gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Judeans. And Mordecai came before the king because Esther had told who he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over Haman's house. Well, the crying with laughter emoji is horribly overused, isn't it? But I'm pretty sure if this chapter had first dropped in 
our church WhatsApp group. That's the one that we'd all be hitting, which is strange, isn't it? When you think about the subject, I wonder where you'd think to turn in this great big holy Bible to learn about the justice of God. Perhaps your first instinct might be to turn right to the end to see God's judgments play out in a blaze of apocalyptic visions, or maybe you're the sort of person who wrestles with how judgment could be fair, and you need a book like Romans helping you organize your thinking into propositional truths. We all deserve God's wrath, but in his grace, he poured it out on his son for those who believe. Maybe there are some of us who feel very wronged, and we want to turn to the book of Psalms that helps us long for that vindication, for a day when the wicked will fall into their own snares. So with all those places to teach us about the reality of God's judgments, what does this one little story deep in the bowels of the Old Testament have to add? We don't need Esther to tell us that God will judge justly. We don't need Esther to tell us that he's faithful to his people or even that he is sovereignly working when we can't see him. If this little book had been lost forever, we'd still know all that stuff. What we'd been missing was this brilliantly told story about one of the many, many times God showed all that. And this story has made it fun. It's made us grip our chairs, hasn't it? As we see God's people swept up into a holy war and facing a, a horrendous holocaust. It's made us then wait full of suspense to see how the plans of one frightened Jewish girl would make any difference against those overwhelming odds. And now as Esther finally springs her trap, it tells the story of a wicked and cruel man's downfall with a wonderful glee. Esther has made us want this moment, wait for this moment, so that when the hidden God's justice finally comes, we could all enjoy it. Esther chapter 7 is in our Bibles because it's not enough to know true things about God. Sometimes it takes a brilliantly told story like this one to help us feel how wonderful those things are. Everything that is in God is wonderful. So here is a true tale to help us feel God's wonderful commitment to justice and to his own honor and to the bride that he defends on that honor. This is a true tale that shows us how things work in God's world, because God is that kind of God. Every last thing that happens in this chapter is beautifully, deliciously, satisfyingly fitting, isn't it? Deeply, deeply fitting. And it's all tied together incredibly tightly. Last time, the dominoes began to fall, and it's as if all of a sudden, nothing can go right for Haman. He almost feels sorry for him. This man who had everything just the day before, a series of unfortunate events, which of course aren't really random events at all. 
And now the last pieces crash down with a speed that leaves us staring and laughing, open-mouthed, all tied together, a queen, a king, and a traitor. First, a queen who ties her fate to her peoples. Because tonight is Queen Esther's night, isn't it? Just a day ago, remember, Haman was boasting to his friends about how only he had been invited to this wonderful second feast with the king and the queen. How he'd longed for this night, planning to have Mordecai on his spike and then enjoy all the smug glory. And instead, it's all gone horribly wrong. And then the officials had knocked on his door and hurried him here while he was still covered in mourning. Not exactly how he wants to be presented before the king, is it? And now it's suddenly Queen Esther who's calling the tune. Notice how time and again she's given that title, Queen Esther. She has grown into this role remarkably, hasn't she? Well, for the third time, the king asks what he can do for her. Three commitments now that she's secured from him, which matters because everything hangs on a mediator who finds favor with the king. Notice verse 3, that is the basis of her plea. So at last, with that favor secured, she's ready to push all her chips onto the table. And she answers in the same language that he's always put the question, my wish and my requests. But the assumption all along has been that those are one and the same thing. Esther asks for two, doesn't she? Two things, my life as my wish and my people as my request. Do you see what she's doing? She's tying herself irrevocably to them so that she and her people are one and the same ask, one and the same thing. We have been sold, I and my people. Now, the king cares about the I, doesn't he? It's Esther who he cares about. She has his favor. An attack on her is an attack on him. And so that's what she leads with, her merits. But Esther has just told the world the secret that she's been hiding all these years. Verse 3 is the big reveal. She has stood now unashamed before the king of kings and identified herself completely with those people in the dust on the other side of the palace door. Added her own name to the bottom of their death warrant. I am Hadassah, the Judean. And now the life and death of the entire people of God hangs on the one they find themselves identified with. Just as we'll see next time, the life and death of all God's enemies hang on who they are identified with. Are they in Esther or are they in Agag? Are you in Jesus or are you in Adam? Do you see how she has grown more and more like Jesus as this book has gone on? It's a beautiful character arc for this woman, isn't it? Here she is now, this frightened girl standing before kings, wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. She could have asked for the easier thing, couldn't she? The selfish thing, 
spare me quietly. But she doesn't. She asks, spare us, all of them. And that would mean somehow the king is going to have to publicly revoke his irrevocable decree. That thing she echoes in verse 4. That's a far harder ask, isn't it? Go back on your words in front of the whole world. But now she doesn't even hesitate, does she, to stand with the condemned and to call them brothers. And we know from chapter 6 that, yes, it was only God's sovereignty, God working, that could ever have brought all this about. But sometimes I think we can use that as an excuse not to do anything, can't we? God will sort it out. He's in control of everything. This book's shown us that. So I don't need to risk my job or my friendship or my pride by having that tricky conversation. Because it costs us, doesn't it, to acknowledge Jesus and his people. How much more, though, did it cost him to acknowledge us? And this would have all been for nothing, wouldn't it, without a mediator who was willing to stand and to do that. And how beautiful it is. Let's enjoy it then as we cheer on for Esther, amazing, brave Esther. And then let's enjoy it all the more in the Savior that she points us to. What a beautiful thought to carry us through this week. Every moment, we have one who stands like this for us without a flicker of shame or hesitation. And he says, those are my brothers, my sisters. They belong with me. A queen who ties her fate to her people. And then secondly, a king who ties his honor to his bride. Notice the very subtle way that Esther puts her case. It's the king in his careless greed who had given Haman his signet ring and allowed that death edict to be signed. It was the king who actually sold Esther's people for whatever money Haman promised him. And so she is a very delicate balancing act now, doesn't she? She can't imply that the king was in any way to blame. And so instead, she appeals through what matters to him. If we'd merely been sold as slaves, if this was just about our discomfort, well, it wouldn't be worth burdening you with, your majesty, but this is. This isn't about our affliction. This is a loss to you, an insult to you. Now, he has been manipulated, hasn't he? Played by Haman. And his own queen now has been caught up in the cost of that. And if he cares about anything, this man cares about his own dignity, which is why his reaction here is like a cat whose tail is caught under a rocking chair. It's an outburst of fury and wounded pride, isn't it? Who is he and where is he whose heart has filled him to do this? Who would dare? It's telling, isn't it, that even a pagan Persian king knows that ultimately what Jesus said is right. Human horrors flow from our human hearts. There is a corrupt heart in this king's realm that has attacked his own majesty. Sin is personal, isn't it? It's an affront. And so that heart has to be found. 
Well, verse 6 is a delicious moment, isn't it? At last, Esther points to him, this wicked Haman. And this wicked Haman chokes on his wine in terror and surprise. Two seconds ago, he was sitting there, smug and comfortable. He didn't have a clue he was playing such a dangerous game. Now he discovers to his horror what he wished he'd known all along. The queen herself is a Judean. And so he's gripped with terror, notice verse 6, not just before the king, but before her. And in retrospect, it was so foolish all along, wasn't it? God had his woman in place from the very beginning. This was never going to fly. But remember, it hadn't felt like that to Esther at the time, just as it never feels that way to us when the moment comes for us to take a stand and we feel vulnerable and inadequate and terrified. Well, the king's fury is the big dominant thing here, right up until the moment it subsides at the end of verse 10. This is wrath that will have to be satisfied, propitiated. And now he sees the whole scheme. He is so raging that he can't even speak. He needs to go and have a walk in the palace garden to cool himself down because he has been backed into an impossible, embarrassing corner. Either he admits that he was a fool to be played by Haman, that he signed off on a genocide and passed it into unbreakable law without even asking a question, who are these people? Or he has to break the promise he's made three times to his bride and allow that insult to his own majesty, an attack on his own wife. And even a bad king like this, even a weak king, can't allow that. Well, we belong to a king of kings whose honor is infinitely more precious and who guards that honor with far more dignity. And yet he's also bound himself like this to a chain of identity, a mediator, a son who he loves, tied to him, and then tied up in that son, a whole people, a bride. And if a king like this can't be seen to break his promises without dishonor, well, wouldn't that be unthinkable to God? If a king like this can't bear to see an enemy demand the life of his own bride, well, what hope does Satan have when he accuses you of sins that Jesus has paid for? It would be an outrage to God's majesty to let you be robbed from him. And more breathtaking still, God actually loves his bride. He cares about more than just his own honor. It would be an outrage to his grace. A king who ties his honor to his bride. But it's the rest of the story, I think, where the real fun is. A traitor who ties his noose around his neck as the king storms out in his furious quandary. Haman stays to beg for his life from the queen, which is already a delicious moment of irony, isn't it? He sees that the king is set on his utter destruction, and so now his only hope in the world is a Jewish woman, one of the ones he plotted to destroy. His only hope now would be Esther acknowledging him before the king. 
and asking the king for mercy, just like she'd acknowledged her people and identified with them. Life and death hangs on who it is who claims us, speaks for us before the king of kings. In Esther, all will live. But this man isn't claimed by Esther. This man is claimed by Agag, the enemy of the gospel. That's how he was introduced to us. Remember, right at the beginning of the story as the seed of Agag. He has made his whole life, his whole career about opposing these people of God. And in Agag, as we'll see next time, all will die. And so in his desperation, verse 8, he falls onto the couch before Esther falls before a Jewish queen. And I wonder if in the back of his mind, in that moment of panic, there was time for those words of his wife to haunt him. If Mordecai is of the seed of the Judeans, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Well, that desperate fall is the last drop for Haman, because just at that moment, it's wonderful, isn't it? The king walks back into the room, and once again, the timing is pure, dark comedy gold. Nothing can go right for this man now. That little slip and the misunderstanding that seems to follow seals his doom. No man, I'm told, in the Persian Empire was allowed to even stand within seven steps of a woman in the king's harem. So this is far too close. And as the king walks in, there he is, disgusting Haman, fumbling in terror on the sofa and clawing at the queen consort while she tries to kick him away in horror. And I doubt the king really believed that he was trying to violate his wife. But it is one final insult, and it's just the excuse he needs. Now no mention needs to be made of that Awkward time, Haman manipulated the king into that embarrassing law. Now Haman can just be condemned as a traitor for an insult to the king's wife, the king himself. And that is the moment that helpful harbiner, the eunuch, pipes up with his handy observation of the massive great spike that he can see messing up the view out of the window. There's a nice handy scaffold out there, sire. He was going to kill the guy who saved you on that. What do you reckon? And onto the spike goes the snake. Well, it is hardly a story that needs improving, isn't it? But apparently there is a tradition in the Aramaic Targum that has a go at making this even better. It says that all the while, the angel Gabriel had been enjoying the show and keeping an eye out the window on the king walking around the garden, just waiting for the moment he came back into the room before giving Harmon a little sneaky shoving the back and making him fall on top of Esther. It's a fun thought, isn't it? But if you've been tuned into this story, you don't need any cheeky angel to pull that off. The hidden God of providence has always been calling the shots. Haman will slip whenever he chooses him to, because this is a God who loves, as the Psalms put it, to catch the wicked in their own nets. Because this God is God, sin just has a tendency to ricochet on us like this, doesn't it? Just as it did for Haman. We do stupid things, wicked things, 
and we bear the consequences. Think how deeply fitting Haman's downfall is here. Here was a man who commanded a genocide all because one Jewish man refused to cringe before him. He ends his life by falling and begging before a Jewish queen. It is deeply fitting, isn't it? God's justice. Here is a man who worked his worst by manipulating a weak and unjust king. Now he dies at the hand of that unjust king for the one crime he didn't actually try and commit, raping the queen. Here is a man driven by his pride, epitomized by that five-story-high spike where he would humiliate Mordecai the Jew and display his body. Now his own humiliated corpse will be displayed to the world on that very same spike because God is not mocked and neither are the people he loves. We may not always see it like this, worked out in time in this age, but there is a fundamental moral integrity to God's universe. He set it up this way. Sin has a tendency to ricochet on us like this. We reap what we sow. We build our own spikes. We tie our own nooses around our own necks. And ultimately, all sin against the true king will be ridiculed and destroyed just like this. And when we see that justice worked out, here's the strange thing. We won't just accept it will say that is wonderful. Because just like this, we'll find it more fitting than we ever imagined was possible. We'll find it beautiful even. And so the day ends with that reversal between Haman and Mordecai that begun last time completed. I told you, didn't I, to keep an eye on that signet ring four chapters ago because the God of providence could give it to whoever he wanted. While now Esther brings... Mordecai before the king and owns him completely, tells who he is to her. And Mordecai, who was condemned, is given all authority. Whereas Haman, who had snatched at all authority, lies condemned on a 70-foot pole. And because he dies a traitor's death, he forfeits all his property so that Mordecai even ends up ruling his household but the story isn't done yet. Somehow that irrevocable law condemning God's people to death, that still has to be revoked. Notice that little comment in verse 10. Now the king's fury has abated. It was never really Esther's people that the king cared about. The king's fury was for his own honor, and Haman's death has satisfied that. And so the danger is not over. The irrevocable law hasn't been revoked. The battle isn't won. But the enemy has been disarmed and put to open shame. And the one in whom the king of kings delights sits at his right hand and wears the ring. And everything has changed because of that, which is exactly where we are right now, isn't it? We are waiting for the final scene in God's rescue story to play out. But looking back, 
we can see the moment in time that changed the world forever. When our mediator died a cursed death like Haman here, lifted high, made sin for us. And in that moment, he broke the devil's power to condemn us once and for all so that our accuser became like a cat without its claws. Three things then as we close that this delicious story of one man's downfall can help us not just to know but to feel and enjoy as we wait this side of the cross for the final act. If the God who tells this story rules our world, if this God is God, then certain things just must be. Look at what he's like. In this God's world, his justice will always be wonderfully fitting and every wrong will be righted in the most beautiful and appropriate way, even the ones that were paid for for you and I long ago when another man died for us. They were punished entirely, perfectly, fittingly, with a justice that wasn't just fair but was beautiful. There is a fundamental moral integrity to everything that falls under his rule. Secondly, in this God's world, his son will always be wonderfully favored. When Jesus stands before his father and looks for favor in his eyes on our behalf, he stands before a king of kings who is infinitely better than this pathetic human pretender. He stands before a king who loves his son with an infinite, dependable love. No banquets needed to twist his arm. No dreading asking for the request. Their will is so united that as Jesus stands before the Father and claims us, he doesn't even have to plead for our forgiveness. He has it before he asks. And third, we can know deep in our bones that in this God's world, his honor will always be wonderfully upheld. Right to the end of the story here, do you see how the true king of kings is maintaining his honor? This book has been a battle between those two seeds, those two lines of humanity. And now in chapter 8, verse 2, one of the oldest covenant promises that God ever made is being kept. His word is proving faithful. Abraham, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, the sand of the seashore. No one's going to lay a finger on them. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Well, now we are in the heart of Persia. And Mordecai quite literally possesses the gates of the great enemy, doesn't he? Just as one day another son of Abraham would conquer the very gates of hell, God is simply upholding his honor, defending his bride, keeping his promises. And so long as God is God, he always will. You and I may have fallen low, fallen like Israel into deep shame, but so long as there is one who is not ashamed to name our name in heaven, then who would dare bring any charge? 
against the one he claims. So long as Christ is for us. That is all that matters, friends, isn't it? Who is standing for you right now before the throne of heaven? Well, let's pray. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that all your ways are wonderful, that your justice is perfect and fitting and good, that your honor is glorious, that you are a God strong enough to chuckle at those who hate you. Let all that is in us adore you. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that in the heart of heaven, you stand right now with our names on your heart before a Father who loves you, unashamed to call us brothers, fully identifying with the sinners you redeemed. So grow our confidence, we pray, Father, in our wonderful, gracious, trustworthy God who claims us sinners as a bride for his son. For we ask it in the name of Christ alone. Amen.